0: Is it a sin, is it a crime, loving you, dear, like I do? If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty guilty of loving you. Hello, welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast that I would normally say is about wild women on the wrong side of the law. But today's subject is so thoroughly atrocious, so horrible in every way, that calling her a wild woman on the wrong side of the law feels a bit too flippant. So I'm skipping that today. Um, Yeah, you guys, we're going dark today. We're going very dark, very sad, very historical we're going to delve into the big crime event of last century, of the last millennium, actually. I'm doing kind of a two-part series here. You'll see, you'll see, they're going to tie into each other. And today we're going to look at something really horrible, and then next episode we're going to look at something really cathartic. So, before I tell you more about today's episode, a little business up front. If you're liking the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes follow criminal broads on Instagram where i always post photos and snappy headlines or whatever historical ephemera i can find of the the days broad and also please consider becoming a patron on Patreon if you go to patreon.com/criminalbroads you will see that there are several level, there are several levels where you can sign up and support the podcast and now a quick word from our sponsor and then we're going to get historical my fellow true crime podcast fans. I am not just a... Host of a true crime podcast. I'm an obsessive true crime podcast listener, and I'm here today to pitch you Stitcher Premium. You probably know about Stitcher or listen to your podcast on Stitcher already, but if you go, uh, if you sign up for a free trial month on Stitcher Premium using a code I'm about to give you, you can experience so many of your favorite podcasts free of ads, or sometimes you'll get new releases or original content that's exclusive to Stitcher Premium. Um, you've got Crime Junkie, you've got Last Podcast on the left, you've got Small Town Murder, you've got something called Man in the Window, which I'm guessing is crime? If it's not crime, I don't want to know why that man's in the window. And you've got Root of Evil, which is about the Black Dahlia. I haven't checked it out, but I really need to. So anyway, if you're interested in trying out Stitcher Premium's exclusive, sizzling, ad-free content. You can get a free month, yes, a free month of all your favorite shows without ads by going to StitcherPremium.com and signing up with the promo code Broad. All right, I'm back. Non-ad Tori is back. Today, we're going to talk about a woman who was exuberantly involved in the Holocaust. The thing about the Holocaust is there is sort of a, it's sort of a bottomless pit of horror. I mean, every time you think you've learned everything you've had, every time you think you've learned everything there is to know about one aspect of it, trust me, there's more. So anyway, we are starting with the story of a female concentration camp guard. Yes, there were female concentration camp guards. Yes, they were just as violent as the men. And perhaps most terrifying of all, yes, they were just as ordinary as the men. It wasn't like the male concentration guards were normal people who uh, embraced Nazism and went to work, and the female concentration camp guards were serial killers that were specially selected. Oh no, everyone was just a normal person, or, you know, so they would have told you. So without further ado, and with a black metal soundtrack, because it was the only thing that felt horrifying and depressing enough to accompany this episode. Let's get started. Oh, and trigger warning, you know, um, this is about the Holocaust. It's not gonna be pretty if this is not something you feel like you wanna hear, that's totally fine. But come back in two weeks because I think you'll wanna hear that one. (laughs) All right, without further ado, for this first anecdote I'm gonna tell you about, we are traveling explicitly back to the year 1945. One day, in 1945, in the concentration camp of Bergen-Belsen, two prisoners—sisters—heard a rumor that there was a pile of potato peels near the kitchen area. The conditions in Bergen-Belsen were so awful that one survivor would later say there simply weren't words to describe them. Huts that were built to hold 100 people were now holding 1,000, many of them already dead. The drinking water was contaminated by corpses. The prisoners were purposefully overworked, made to stand for hours in the snow until they dropped dead, dying of typhus and dysentery, at the mercy of the guards' evil whims, and if none of that killed them, there was always the hunger. A hunger so bad it made them feel like they were going insane. But now, there was this rumor of food spreading through the camp. Potato peels near the kitchen. The sisters looked at each other. Should they try and find the food? It was risky, hideously risky. But then there was also the risk of starvation. They decided to wait until nightfall and then creep toward the kitchen to see what they could find. Night came. The sisters moved toward the kitchen area, closer, closer, and then BAM! A woman sprang out at them from the darkness, a woman much healthier than they were, a woman who clearly wasn't starving, a woman with a pistol and a whip. She grabbed their heads and cracked their skulls together so hard that the sisters were dizzy and nauseous for weeks. There were no potato peels there. There had never been any potato peels. This woman had set the whole thing up. She'd been waiting there in the darkness for someone to show up, knowing that starvation wouldn't let her victims stay away, waiting to feel the exquisite rush of cruelty for cruelty's sake. Decades later, a biographer approached one of those sisters. He was writing a book about that woman, the one with the whip and the pistol. He wanted to know if the sister had ever encountered her. The sister told him about the potato peel incident, but she wouldn't let him use her name or even officially use the anecdote in his book. He had to mention it in passing in the preface. Many, many years had passed since that night and the woman with the whip was long dead, but her name was still too frightening for her victims to say in the light. Irma Ilse Aida Greza was born on October 7th, 1923, on a farm in the middle of nowhere about 50 miles north of Berlin. Her farmer father was strict, traditional, and a faithful churchgoer. Her mother died when Irma was 12. She had four siblings. Other than these facts, we know very little about her early life, but we can guess that it was probably quite boring. She was a peasant girl with no exciting prospects, no source of power, nothing that she could cling to and say, this, this is what makes me special. She was a farm kid, a country girl, a nobody. In January 1933, when Irma was almost 10, a man named Adolf Hitler became the German Chancellor and German lives changed forever, especially the lives of German children. Hitler was obsessed with the youth of his country. He saw them as the future, or as he called them, the foundation stone of our empire. Suddenly, grammar schools across the country were inundated with Nazi ideology. Instead of chemistry and math, they focused on physical fitness, eugenics, and ideas like Germany's greatness, the quote-unquote supremacy of the Aryan race, and antisemitism. Instead of biology, they studied race science. Instead of geography, they studied geopolitics. And everything was served up with a steaming helping of loyalty to Hitler. With this educational takeover, German kids were transformed at lightning speed into obedient little Nazis. Even innocent groups, like hiking clubs, were turned into political organizations designed to churn out Hitler's ideal type of young person, which he described as swift as a greyhound, as tough as leather, and as hard as Krupp's steel. For boys, there was the Hitlerjugend, Hitler Youth. And for girls, there was the Bund Deutscher Mädel, The League of German Girls. These ideas that kids were being taught in school are not just repellent, but are obviously manipulative. Oh, how convenient that Hitler managed to squeeze a little loyalty to himself into every aspect of the curriculum. But for a bored little girl with a burgeoning angry streak, they proved powerfully compelling. Here was someone finally telling her that people just like her Aryan-German girls from the country were inherently better than not just the corrupt German city-slickers, but than every other type of person on the globe. Irma loved it. The totalitarian structure of her education suited her personality well. Before then, she had been a cowardly little girl, the type who, according to her younger sister, would always run away from a fight. But that cowardly nature, and whatever repressed rage and frustration came along with it, just needed a bit of structure and enabling to bloom into something awful. The fact that she ran away from fights never meant that she was a good person. It meant that she was someone who would only strike back if she knew she would win. Now, the young women in the League of German Girls were not being trained to be soldiers or concentration camp guards or Hitler's right-hand ladies. They were being taught to be good Aryan mothers and maybe, possibly if they had to work, nurses. But that was all. Hitler's vision for society had no room whatsoever for working women. In fact, as the historian David Schoenbaum has pointed out, The idea of a German businesswoman was just as bad to the Nazis as the idea of a black businessman. This isn't to say that Nazi girls were coddled. Just like the boys, their education focused on extreme physical exercises, and the academics were pretty tough, too. It was a perfect system for taking in unformed, bored, lonely farm girls like Irma and transforming that boredom and loneliness into fanatical dedication for the Nazi cause. As Irma was sucked deeper and deeper into Hitler's ideology, her father, back home, was horrified. He disagreed wholeheartedly with the beliefs that she was being taught, but Irma didn't care. She had found something far more powerful than family to dedicate herself to. An entire worldview catered right to her, which declared that Aryan men were better than her, okay, but other than that, she was at the top. Initially, Irma wanted to become a nurse, and so at age 15, she got an apprentice nursing position at a convalescent hospital run by the SS, the Schutzstaffel, Hitler's beloved paramilitary organization that was responsible for the genocide of millions of Jewish people and other groups designated as subhuman by Hitler. The hospital where Irma was now working was run by a horrifying doctor named Carl Gebhardt, a man who would go on to perform experiments in concentration camps where he would break prisoners' legs and infect them intentionally with diseases in order to prove that the drug he was going to treat them with didn't work after all. He was obsessed with the idea of racial purification, and Irma, working under him, surely absorbed much of his philosophy. The problem was that Irma wasn't a great nurse. So one day, Dr. Gebhardt suggested that her uh, talents might be better suited for a little place called Ravensbruck, the largest concentration camp for women in the German Reich. As the war raged on and Hitler's workforce dwindled, female guards were desperately needed at concentration camps like these, and no formal education or training was required. You just had to be able to watch over prisoners, according to one advertisement for the job. In exchange, you'd get food, housing, and a snappy uniform. This was a decent enough deal for a farm girl who wasn't good enough to become a nurse. And so by July of 1942, Irma was at Ravensbruck, being trained to become an SS Aufseherin or a female overseer. Now... Up until this point, Irma hadn't really been good at anything, despite Hitler's yapping that people like her were the cream of the crop. Nothing she'd done had set her apart or marked her as special, but Irma felt like she was special. Sometimes she dreamed of being an actress, with all eyes on her, adoringly. And now, as she set foot in her first concentration camp, Irma was about to find work, that she was really good at. The training to become a female guard was intentionally brutal. The goal, it seemed, was to strip the guards of any softness, any scrap of empathy or emotion that they might have lingering about in their hearts and minds, until they were able to treat prisoners as though they truly were not human beings. The frightening thing was that none of these female guards were forced to sign up for this work, and most of them adapted to camp life with horrifying speed. One French political prisoner who had seen the traving at Ravensbrück reported. The beginners usually appeared frightened upon first contact with the camp, and it took some time to attain the level of cruelty and debauchery of their seniors. But inevitably, the transformation happened. There was something about the authoritarian structure of the camp that enabled young women to slip easily into their new roles, even though they had no military training, unlike their male co-workers. This... Bureaucratization bureaucraticization of violence is, of course, part of what made the Nazis so horribly successful. They didn't have to troll the streets for serial killers to staff their camps. They just took ordinary people, put them in uniform, and commanded them to be cruel. And the ordinary people obeyed. It seemed like most of these guards were totally unmoved by their work, but if they were disturbed, the proof of it only came out at night. Both male and female guards had a creepy habit of retreating into a sort of parallel frat-boy existence once they were done with the day's shouting and torturing. They would gorge on food, laugh like hyenas, and drink until they blacked out. They were always hooking up with each other, and it wasn't unusual for them to get so drunk that they couldn't remember who they'd gone home with the night before. The woman overseeing Irma's training was the notorious Theodora Bince, infamous for once chopping a woman prisoner to death with an axe until she was, quote, little more than a bloody lump, and then cleaning off her boots with the dead woman's skirt. She was also known for walking around the camp arm-in-arm with her boyfriend and passionately making out after witnessing some act of violence. From Theodora Irma learned about the concentration camp's terrifying tradition of early morning roll call, which guards used as an opportunity to torture the prisoners. The guards called this Sportmachen, to make sport. Before long, Irma was making sport with the rest of them. Yes, Irma thrived during her three-week training, and once she began working as a guard for real, she quickly earned a reputation for being even better than her superiors. This was the role that all her childhood boredom and resentment and lust for attention and power had been building toward. In a way, Hitler couldn't have chosen a better guard than this disaffected teenager who thrived best when she was supported by the signifiers of power— a uniform, a pistol, a whip, heavy hobnailed boots. Irma may have been, at her heart, a coward, the kid who'd run away whenever a fight broke out but bolstered by the authoritarian structures of Nazism, she felt untouchable, and that proud, untouchable feeling translated into appalling violence. Prisoners would tremble when they saw her coming with her boots, which she always kept shiny, and her uniform, which she took great pride in keeping crisp and clean. What made her even scarier was that she had this pretty, childish face framed in angelic blonde hair. She looked kind, adorable even. That is, until you saw the expression on her face when she was whipping a prisoner. On a trip home during her time at Ravensbruck, Irma and her father had an enormous fight. He was horrified that his daughter was now working for the SS. She was proud of her new identity. They argued violently He threw her out of the house and scrubbed her from his memory. Irma would never return home again. At the end of her life, this memory was the one thing that had the power to make her cry. When Irma returned to the concentration camp after the fight with her father, she found that her role was about to change. She'd done great work at Ravensbrück, according to her supervisors, but it seemed a shame to waste a girl with so much potential on the banal task of overseeing work details. Surely such a bright young thing would be better suited to more challenging work. And so, in March of 1943, Irma received her new assignment. She was headed to Auschwitz. Yes. Auschwitz, Irma was stationed at Birkenau, the largest of the 40-plus camps that made up the dreaded Auschwitz complex. Birkenau was only open for three years, but during that time, guards managed to slaughter about one million people. It was there that Irma proved herself once again to be well-suited to her horrible work, and it wasn't long until she was promoted to Uberaufswehrin, or Senior SS Matron. This was the second highest rank that an SS woman could achieve, and Irma achieved it at 20 years old. With this promotion came unthinkable power. As her biographer Daniel Patrick Brown puts it, Irma was now given virtual control of 30,000 women and had the power to exterminate literally thousands of human beings on a whim. There were many, many ways to die in Auschwitz. You could be sent to the gas chambers right away. You could be sent later. You could be killed during that infamous early morning roll call, or you could drop dead because your starving body couldn't handle the workload. You could be killed for trying to talk to your mother, or for working too slowly, or because a guard didn't like the way you looked that day. Or you could be killed by a doctor. The hideous crimes and bizarre experiments of Dr. Joseph Mengele, Auschwitz's very own angel of death, are too numerous to get into here. But suffice it to say that he made Irma's last doctor acquaintance, Karl Gebhardt, look like a total amateur. According to many rumors, Mengele and Irma became lovers, and Irma loved helping him select his specimens. She would arrange her female prisoners into formation, and Mengele would walk by, picking out the ones he felt like experimenting on. He was especially fond of twins, and Irma would help him find twins. He would perform gruesome surgeries on one of them and use the other as his own personal control group. If he and Irma were lovers, as they probably were, they were certainly well suited to each other. Not only did they love to hear people scream, but they were both weirdly vain, and they stood out like sore thumbs at Auschwitz because they were always so meticulously done up. In the midst of all that death and destruction, it must have been spine-chilling to see Dr. Mengele picking his way past dead bodies in his shiny boots or to see Irma whipping someone viciously, with her hair in perfect curls, and not a speck of makeup out of place. Dr. Mengele was not Irma's only lover, though. She was bisexual, and she was known to have affairs, though the word affair is far too consensual here, with female prisoners, which was very much illegal in Germany at the time. A provision that passed in 1935 declared that if a German Aryan had sexual intercourse with a Jewish person, both were guilty of race defilement and both could be put to death. But this didn't seem to bother Irma. She had a simple solution to her law-breaking. After she was done with one of her quote-unquote affairs, she would simply send that woman off to the gas chambers. She was sleeping with plenty of men, too, and at one point had to ask a prisoner who was trained as a doctor to give her a secret abortion. Her voracious sexuality oozed into her torture. She always carried around one of her beloved whips. She made one of them herself out of cellophane, and it gleamed in the light. She had another one that was decorated with colorful beads. And she loved to whip young female prisoners with large breasts, according to the testimony of some survivors. She would whip them on the breasts. And then, when they inevitably became infected, she would watch them be operated on without anesthetic. And witnesses say that she appeared to be aroused by their screams. Another survivor remembered that Irma would find pregnant prisoners. And when they were in labor, She would tie their legs together just to see what happened. Sometimes Irma could be seen stalking about the camp accompanied by a huge dog, which she would command to attack prisoners if she didn't feel like they were working hard enough. Her reputation preceded her and prisoners did everything they could to hide when they saw her blonde hair gleaming in the sunlight. Sometimes she broke out her pistol. No one knows how many people she killed, The Nazis, for all their obsession with organization, didn't keep track of their victims very well. But one estimate is that Irma Greza slaughtered up to 30 people every single day. it seemed to the women in Birkenau that their torture and terror would never end, but what they didn't know was that salvation was coming, in the form of the Soviet army, which was rapidly drawing closer. The Nazi leaders knew this, of course, and began making plans to evacuate the complex. Irma was quickly transferred out of there and ended up at Bergen-Belsen, a camp that would be described by one of the soldiers who liberated it as probably the foulest and vilest spot that ever spoiled the surface of the earth. Irma arrived at Belsen in March of 1945, along with a boyfriend that she'd made back in Auschwitz. Not long after she got there, authorities tried to transfer her somewhere else, but she asked to stay because she didn't want to be separated from her new crush. This was always one of the most confounding things about her. She would commit these acts of unspeakable sadism, and then she'd turn right around and talk about some boy and fuss over her hair and giggle with excitement. Another sign of her weird immaturity and her straight-up delusion was that she truly thought that after the war ended, she would move to Hollywood and become a famous actress. Outside of the camp walls, the Nazi regime was collapsing. And so inside of the camp, the SS guards attempted to speed up their murder rate. Irma and her co-workers would force the prisoners at Belsen to stand in the snow for hours-long roll calls, and many of the prisoners would simply keel over dead by the time the roll call was up. Irma would also force dying prisoners to carry heavy rocks over their heads for no reason whatsoever until they, too, collapsed. Another 500 prisoners a day were dying of starvation and disease without the guards even lifting a finger. In fact, it wasn't surprising that so many people died at Belson. What was surprising was that anyone survived it. One survivor explains her endurance as an act of sheer defiance. The place was so nightmarish, so utterly inhumane, that she took one look at it and told herself, I refuse to die like this. I refuse. On April 15th, 1945, British troops arrived at Bergen-Belsen to liberate the prisoners who were left. Nothing could have prepared them for what they found—the filth, the corpses, the huge eyes and gaunt faces of the survivors. Bizarrely, the SS guards greeted the enemy troops cheerfully, all lined up in formation like good Nazi employees as a pile of 10,000 unburied bodies rotted behind them. 10,000 unburied bodies. Amidst all this horror, one of the things that sickened the British the most was actually the sight of Irma and all her other female guards. There they stood, waiting to be arrested in their shiny boots, with arrogant expressions on their faces. They were surrounded by corpses so emaciated that they looked like skeletons, but every single one of those female guards was clearly extremely well-fed. It didn't take long for the international press to become fascinated with the pretty young fiend who'd just been arrested at Bergen-Belsen. Journalists began referring to Irma as the beautiful beast, obsessed with the contrast between her angelic little girl looks and her grisly track record. Most of her fellow SS women looked a lot more, well, evil in that they were older, more disheveled, more hardened, with faces twisted up in rage. They looked like what you might expect a Nazi murderess to look like, their very faces corrupted by their wicked works, or so it seemed. In contrast, in a photo taken after her arrest, Irma looks about 12 years old. Being arrested and put on trial didn't seem to faze Irma much. Nazism had wormed its way so deep into her brain that there was no going back for her, not ever. At one point, she was confronted by a concentration camp survivor who shouted at her, Why did you do these things? She snapped back, It was our duty to exterminate antisocial elements so that Germany's future would be assured. She'd absorbed Hitler's message as a child, and now she could spew it back at will, as obedient and eager as a schoolgirl. The trial of Irma and 44 other Nazi war criminals began on September 17, 1945, and lasted exactly two months. Irma showed up in crisp clothes and well-coiffed hair, and she kept a look on her face that her biographer described as a fanatical facade. She took great pains to show that she had no regrets whatsoever about what she'd done. When the prosecution played films of the concentration camps, taken by those who'd liberated them, Irma made sure to show everyone that she didn't care by fixing her hair and blowing her nose. She was always taking notes during the trial in an attempt to seem like she was coming up with some brilliant defense. In reality, the only thing she was writing down was the command, Kopf hoch, head high. The only time she appeared the least bit vulnerable was when her sister testified about their childhood and about how her father had thrown her out of the house when she joined the SS. Upon hearing this, Irma wept for the first time. The second time she wept, she was in her jail cell. On November 17th, she and two other women were sentenced to death by hanging, And though she managed to keep a cold, unbothered front in the courtroom, she broke down back in her cell and cried like a child. But just like her tears in the courtroom, these meant nothing. There was no remorse in her eyes, no change of heart, no dawning realization that her father was right, that she'd hitched her wagon to something that not even the devil himself could dream up. As with so many other sociopaths throughout history, she was weeping only for herself. If Hitler had ever met Irma Grese say, when she was 15 years old, he would have most likely advised her to get married and start birthing strong Aryan sons for his empire. He wouldn't have wanted her to work. He certainly wouldn't have wanted her to gain any power. His vision for Nazi Germany was absolutely patriarchal. He wanted his women producing more Nazis while his men could concentrate on eliminating everybody else. He even founded something called the Reich Bride Schools, which were pretty much exactly what they sounded like, training centers to teach young women to be suitable brides, good at ironing and growing vegetables, and loyal to their SS husbands and to Hitler until the day they died. But as World War II progressed and Hitler's thousand-year Reich was starting to look like it wouldn't make it into its teenage years, he was forced to change his stance towards women. Now Hitler needed bodies, lots and lots of bodies, to swell the ranks of his dwindling workforce. Okay, so he'd previously said that women should just stay home and raise children, well, now he was changing his mind, damn it! and he wanted them to become working women after all. And so women like Irma Greza eagerly signed up to work. In total, about three and a half thousand women worked in the SS. And of all of them, Irma was perhaps, in a twisted way, the biggest success story. She was a peasant girl from Nowhere Land, with no prospects, and she climbed the Nazi ranks until she reached a point where, as her biographer writes, she could literally determine the fate of thousands of unfortunate men, women, and children. Though no one was keeping track of exactly how many people she killed, she very well may be the most successful female mass murderer of the 20th century, or even of all time. And she did it all before her 23rd birthday. One has to imagine that Hitler, at the end, would have been very pleased with Irma. She was dedicated, fanatical, willing to go above and beyond, like in the incident with the potato peels. When she cracked those sisters' heads together, that action didn't further the war effort, or spread Nazi ideology, or even eliminate two more quote-unquote subhuman prisoners. It was pure whim. Cruelty for the sake of cruelty. Irma had absorbed her lessons well. In fact, though Hitler may have initially wanted someone like Irma to stay home, Adolf Hitler and Irma Greza were actually rather similar. Both were obsessed with acting, with performance, with aesthetics. Both were delusional narcissists who thrived best when strutting about in front of a crowd. Both were, in the end, not just reprehensible, but cowardly and absolutely pathetic. Irma Greza was 22 when she went to her death. She and the other two women who were going to be hanged alongside her stayed up all night singing Nazi anthems, faithful to the end, at times people could hear them laughing. The next morning, Irma mounted the steps of the gallows as fast as she could and whispered, Schnell, hurry, to the executioner. It was time for her to face the great equalizer, death. Death which she doled out so easily to hundreds or thousands of her fellow human beings. And she was scared. At 10.03 a.m., the trapdoor dropped beneath her feet, and she plunged toward the soil of her fatherland. She was buried quickly, without fanfare. Although, unlike her victims, she was at least given a coffin. The end, everyone. Ugh. I feel like I want to apologize for telling you this story, but I also feel like we gotta know these things, right? I mean, we can't just pretend like history didn't happen. We can't just pretend like only men were involved in the Nazi cause. Um, not to downplay the involvement of men in the Nazi cause, because obviously they were the main ones calling all the shots. But anyway. I hope you, I won't say enjoyed that story, but I hope you got something from it. Now, you're probably cursing my name saying, damn it, Tori, I come here for, you know, merry murderesses of 1920s Chicago. I come here for the occasional cult leader. I come here for Northern Indian bandit Queens, so I can root for. I don't come here to hear stories of deranged 22-year-old blondes who think they're going to be actresses but are actually some of the worst sadists that no Hollywood horror movie writer could dream up. Well, let me tell you why I told you the story of a horrible Nazi woman this episode. I told you it to prepare you for next episode, because next episode, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to the other side, and we are going to look at some of the crime-fighting broads during World War II who were fighting back against the Nazis. So yeah, it's gonna feel so good. I promise. I took you through all this pain so we could have the catharsis together. Alright, um, you know the drill, rate review, find me on uh Instagram if you wanna see photos of Irma and be shocked at how baby faced she looks. Ugh. Um send me an email at criminalbroads at gmail.com if you would like to chat, swap ideas, or give me podcast recommendations. All right. Well, until I talk to you next, happy July. Have fun. It's finally ripe tomato weather and summer, at least here in America. If you are in America, happy July 4th. I hope you have a, I hope you have a nice celebration. If you're not in America and you're like, July 4th, what's that? Let me tell you a way you can enjoy it. Um, corn on the cob. If you haven't tried it, try some sweet corn on the cob. Put a lot of butter on it and a lot of salt, and you will not regret it. And I will be eating one, too, in solidarity with you. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening and for being so awesome. Um, lots of love to you all. And I'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you.